episode 49 of Screaming Through the Ages. I am your host, Trey Whetstone, coming here from Columbus, Ohio, and we're finally here. We're finally in October. So for October, the plan for the show is to do a two-part look into folk horror. I think it's going to be really interesting to look into the history of some of these folk horror movies and really where the folk horror groundswell started and different aspects of it. I have a lot of different varying topics to discuss throughout these couple of episodes, and I'm really excited for them. But uh, first at the top, I just wanted to say there will be, uh, as far as the plan for October, I will have a an episode every week starting with this episode. So you have this episode, and then next week you'll have a bonus episode where I'm joined by Joseph Wilkie to talk about retro horror video games. And mostly we're talking uh, PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2 horror video games. We do get into some of the older stuff as well. But that'll be the bonus episode for next week. The week after, I will be back to continue the folk horror stuff. And then after that, I will have a short little bonus episode where I'm planning on talking about my... Uh, some of my favorite or my experience with the 31 days of Halloween this year that I'm going through for my marathon. I might have some mini reviews of new releases in there, but I'm not sure. But that is the plan for October. So I'm very excited about it and can't wait to get that stuff out to you guys. With this first segment here, and I kind of want to break these down, the topics I want to look into, I'm going to do this a little different than the Giallo episode, which was easy to kind of separate into different uh, tiers and different, you know, here is 1971, here's 1968, that kind of stuff. It's not as easy as that with folk horror. So over the course of these couple episodes, I'm going to be looking at folk horror by region. So this one, for instance, I'm going to be looking at the Canada and U.S. folk horror movies. I'm going to be looking at different segments like my werewolf rankings with some werewolf folk horror films. Also going to be doing a screaming off the shelves where I look at that giant folk horror box set, All the Haunts Be Ours from Severin that was released a couple years ago, and look at some of the films on there. I'm going to be focusing on Europe for one. I'm going to be focusing on Asia for one. I'm going to be talking about the modern revival of folk horror And also going to be talking a little bit about some urban legends and folk tales that I think absolutely fits into folk horror and doesn't get mentioned as much. But with that out of the way, I'm going to start off with the U.S. and Canada folk horror films. And with this, I think I'm going to go in a little bit of a timeline for it and break down some of these. I'm going to be giving many reviews as I go through. Uh, Sit back, and I hope you enjoy these folk horror episodes. This is definitely a genre where I have had a lot of experience in, and I just really like a lot of the films. So much like the Giallo, maybe those aren't the first two genres or subgenres you think of when you are going to try to promote your horror podcast, but those are two of my favorites for sure. And I think folk horrors come back in a big way. So let's go ahead and get started on this stuff. So first up, for the U.S. and Canada stuff, I want to talk about pre-1970, because I don't have uh, that many folk horror films before that. And I think when we talk folk horror films in the U.S., specifically in the U.S., but I think when we talk folk horror films, you're really thinking about 
a lot of the times they're broken into different categories. You either have that rural setting, but if you're thinking like UK and Europe, you're thinking of that like 1600s, 1700s period. I think you're thinking of that in the US as well. I would argue that Westerns would probably fit into some kind of folk horror as well. That is for my sensibilities. You're also talking about witches. And a lot of times I think folk horror gets confused for witch horror because you do have a lot of overlap there and a lot of witch movies are considered folk horror. I think in general you need to have specific characteristics for a witch movie to be a folk horror movie. Like I would say something like The Craft is definitely not a folk horror movie. But for me personally, something like She Will definitely felt more naturalistic and tuned in or Hellbender definitely feel like more of folk horror films to me than something like The Craft. And then we also have the subject of like these cults and pagan societies and all that kind of older stuff. Essentially, I think what folk is saying is it's trying to refer back to a period of time when all this stuff was relevant. I mean, if we look at it as an adjective here, the word folk It is relating to the traditional art or culture of a community or nation. It's really kind of harkening back to an older time, and that's where I think things like urban legends and westerns fall into that for the United States. If we go further, if we look at a definition of folk horror, you know, it's a subgenre of horror film and horror fiction that uses elements of folklore to invoke fear and foreboding. Uh, Typical elements include a rural setting, isolation, and themes of superstition, folk religion, paganism, sacrifice, and the dark aspects of nature. Now, the U.S. is kind of unique when compared to a lot of parts of the world in the sense that that if you're not talking about the Native American cultures, there's really not that lengthy period of settlement that we had with places like Europe and Asia and all that. So we haven't been around for as long, and I'll definitely get into this a little later, but I think some of the big things in America and what have been passed down are not necessarily horror figures. I mean, you do have the uh, cryptids and all that kind of stuff and the legends that go around that that kind of get into the horror, but we don't have our, you know, our legends and tall tales would be kind of like Santa Claus versus (laughs) the Krampus of uh, Scandinavia. I think in the U.S., we a lot of times we'll focus on pilgrim iconography when we're talking about folk stuff um, or witches. I think witches are huge here because of the the witch trials, which happened all over Europe. I mean, it's not uh, anything like that. But when we're talking about our kind of folklore and like I mentioned, tall tales, uh, John Smith and Pocahontas or you know Davy Crockett or Paul Bunyan, which there is a Paul Bunyan horror movie. Um, it's a sci fi original. I would not recommend it. Please don't watch that movie. But things like The Lone Ranger and just these kind of icons are what we look at in America. But there was a piece of folklore that is very essential in the United States. And that is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. And this was published in 1820, but it still had a resounding effect on American culture, and has gotten several film adaptations. And I say all this to lead into the very first one on the list here. 
But in 1922, 100 years after the original story was written, we have The Headless Horseman, which is a silent black and white film. I don't know much about this one, but I do know that you can catch it on Prime Video. So it is out there for your for your viewing pleasure. And then we move into the next one that I have here. And the next folk horror film that I found in the U.S. wasn't until 1945. And that is The Woman Who Came Back. So this one, again, I don't know much about, but it's uh, a young woman is tormented by the belief that she is the victim of a witch's curse. So definitely fits into that witch stuff. And I think a little earlier than we would see, because the witch craze and like film and stuff for the U.S. didn't happen until a long time after that. Then there's another jump. And in 1957, we have something that focuses on a cult. And that is Jacques Turner's Night of the Demon. And, you know, for anyone who has watched that, you know about the... If you haven't watched it and you've seen the poster, you probably don't see how that could be a cult or a folk horror movie. But I think in a certain sense, it definitely is. But really, those are the main U.S. and Canada folk horror films that I could find before 1970. I'm sure there's more out there, but these were the ones that I was able to dig through and find for my list. But once we get to 1970, we have, I don't want to say an explosion, but we do have a lot of stuff come out. And I think a lot of that probably has to do with what's going on in the UK at the time when where folk horror is just starting to break out over there as well. So let's go ahead and what I'm going to do is kind of go through and rapid fire these ones off. And there's some that I watched for the very first time, and I'll talk about those a little more in depth here as we go along. The first one on my list is Crowhaven Farm. I haven't seen that one. I would definitely, there's just too many of these. And I think I ended up watching like eight or something of these films here for the first time. So I just, I, you know, I couldn't get to all of them that I wanted to see. But I did not get to Crowhaven Farm, but you have that one in 1970. 1971, this was interesting. So let me know what you think of this one if you have an opinion on it. I haven't seen this movie in a long time, and that is Let's Scare Jessica to Death in 71. Uh, some people listed it as folk horror, maybe because it takes place in the country. I don't think this was. I think this had revolved around, I think it was much more of like a psychological thing, but maybe it does have folk horror elements. I don't know. It's been too long since I've seen it. Then in 1972, we have Invasion of the Blood Farmers, which I haven't seen but then we do have one that I have seen, and one that I watched here recently, and that is Daughters of Satan, which was a co-production between the United States and the Philippines. So to set this up a little bit, it was directed by Hollingsworth Morse, and I haven't heard of a better, I think that might be the best name of a folk horror director ever. Um, the tagline is, A Secret Cult of Lust-Craved Witches Torturing with Fire and Desire. And the synopsis is, a man buys a painting depicting witches being burned at the stake, one of whom bears an uncanny resemblance to his wife. And so with this one, I can't necessarily recommend this. I think it has a really good setup. It has Tom Selleck in it, and it starts with him buying this painting in this shop. 
that shows conquistadors burning witches. And it has a number of different people within this painting. And basically the people, you know, kind of disappear in the painting. One of the people look like his wife. So it's a really cool setup. And I think there are really cool moments in Daughters of Satan. My problem with Daughters of Satan is it's just pretty boring for the most part. And I just couldn't get past that. So, I mean, there are, there are some good moments of horror in here. There's a lot of weird torture stuff going on with this cult and everything that's going on. But this is definitely like a cult movie. This is definitely like a witch movie. It's got all of those aspects of folk horror. The problem is it just doesn't hold your interest very much. So I don't want to get too much into Daughters of Satan because I don't have a lot to say about it. You know, if I was going to give this a score, I would probably be giving it a five. So even though it has a lot of cool elements and a cool setup, I don't think it's worth it at all. Not even Tom Selleck can save this one. But um, I'll probably go deeper into some of these other ones, but I just don't have a whole lot to say on that one. I just kind of kind of warn you away from Daughters of Satan if you haven't seen it. 1973, we have Messiah of Evil, which I also watched for the first time. So with Messiah of Evil, this is a film that has gained a big cult following recently, directed by Willard Hayek and Gloria Katz. The tagline is terror you won't want to remember in a film you won't be able to forget. And the synopsis is a young woman searching for her missing artist father finds herself in the strange seaside town of Point Dune, which seems to be under the influence of a mysterious undead cult. So there again, you have the cult elements in this one. This is one that I think a lot of people love and talk about and really get into. For myself, I thought it was cool. It was fine. My biggest problem with Messiah of Evil is it's just kind of... It doesn't have a plot or a story. The story and the plot is just kind of all over the place. It's not really told in any kind of traditional linear sense. I think the characters are extremely forgettable. There's not really anything there to the plot or story. And I know that's not why people love this movie. They love it for the, you know, the visual aspects. I want to talk about some positives of this one, though. And with Messiah of Evil, you do have a really good atmosphere. And the idea of this town that is kind of haunted by this cult or where this cult has taken over is a really good one. And I think there's awesome scenes. There's a scene in a movie theater. So you have a couple scenes, and I don't think I'm really spoiling any plot stuff here. But there's a couple of scenes where you have women alone by themselves, and they just get attacked by something. And one's in a around a grocery store, and the other one's with a movie theater. And those scenes are spectacular, and I love those scenes. And I think it's that kind of stuff that people love this film for. There are some really good scenes in this one. It just doesn't have much as a way of a plot or a story or characters or anything like that that I necessarily care about. The backstory of this is uh, pretty cool, and I do like the the build-up to the ending and the ending. I mean, the ending of this packs a punch. I love the ending, and I love the... Um, I don't know if they're the cult members or what's haunting, how you want to refer to them, but the antagonist in this film is really cool. So the visuals and the action and stuff that goes on in this and the horror elements are really good. 
so I would, even though I would give this, I think like a, a 6.5 probably, I would still recommend people get out there and see this one, especially if you're not concerned as much with the plot or the narrative, which I think is very underdeveloped. But the visuals are so cool, and there's some great horror moments as well. Next up in 1974, we have The Legend of Hillbilly John, which I have not seen and might not see. I don't know. Um, (laughs) So that's going to be a no for me. But in 1975, we have another film that I have seen, and that is Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural. And I watched this last October, and I'm not going to talk a whole lot about it. But if I go into the um, synopsis a little bit, it's a notorious bank robber kills his wife and flees the police only to be captured by a mysterious group of figures in an abandoned town. His beautiful daughter, Lila Lee, receives a letter stating that her father is near death and that he needs to see her. Sneaking away at night from her minister guardian, Lila embarks on a terrifying journey. And this is another one where the atmosphere, it's just oozing atmosphere. You know, it's a pretty creepy movie in more ways than one, absolutely. Not just with the straightforward kind of horror, but with some uh, creepy pedophile type stuff. It's all very disturbing. It does feel like a TV movie, though, even though it isn't. And that's not to say that the quality really suffers for it, but it just has that feel. But I like the creature effects, and I'm sure they did what they could with what they had. I'm sure the budget for this wasn't very big. The last act wasn't my favorite, and I see this a lot of times where it just kind of goes off the rails. But it does have a good ending, and... I'm glad I think that I checked it out. It's a cool little atmospheric movie, but it's nothing you need to rush out and see. I think, let me look back here at Letterboxd. I think I ended up giving this one like a seven. So I really do like Lamora Child's Tale as this weird little oddity of a film. And I think it's superior to the other two I've talked about. And that's probably a little bit of a lesser known one. I think, let me check here. So, no, it, I thought I thought it was on Shudder, or maybe maybe I found it on YouTube. It is on Flix Fling to rent or stream if you have that service. But I, I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. And you can also buy the DVD for like 15 bucks, I think, on Amazon. But now these next two I want to get into and talk about a little more as well. First up in 1976, and both of these are 1976 films, The first one is Dark August, which is streaming right now on Shudder and Tubi. And the synopsis of this one is, A young girl is accidentally run down by a car driven by a careless city slicker. This careless injustice provokes the girl's grandfather into summoning his mystical powers and placing a death curse on the young man. Desperate to stave off the dire consequences of the hex, Barry seeks the counsel of a local psychic medium. I I guess that's kind of a good synopsis for this one. I don't know. Essentially, you have this guy, Sal, who is an artist coming down from uh, New York City to live in this Vermont town. See, I like the aspect of this uh, medium or whatever it is here, um, Adriana. And I like that, you know, one of Sal's, I think it's one of Sal's friends, Leslie. She's like this clairvoyant lady who does this tarot reading, and I do like all of that, and there's some cool aspects of it. 
um, you know, did this old man curse Sal and is this curse following him? And there's hooded figure and there's all kinds of cool stuff, visual effects like that. This one's just a bit boring for me, though. I think there's a fine line with folk horror stuff of whether it can um, get interesting or get lost in itself a bit. And I think Dark August is one of those films. Now, if I was to give a recommendation on Dark August, I don't think I could really recommend it. I would say this one's one that you definitely could pass on. There's some cool elements, cool setup to the story, like some of the others I've talked about tonight. But really, Dark August just didn't really do it for me. I mean, I would give this thing like a 5.5 probably just because there are some cool moments here and there. The next one, though, from 1976 is a Canada and U.S. uh, co-production. And this one's called Shadow of the Hawk, directed by George McCohen and Daryl Duke. And the synopsis for this one is... Jan Michael Vincent stars as Mike, the grandson of Native American shaman Old Man Hawk, who was called back to his village to help defeat evil forces threatening the tribe. After years of living in the city and working in the business world altogether apart from his roots, Mike is contacted by a freelance reporter, Maureen, who was enlisted by Old Man Hawk to track his grandson. When Mike ascends to returning with Marine, they find that the village is beset by the evil spirit of an ancient sorceress, animating beasts and objects and causing strange deadly accidents. Only the heir of the tribe shaman can stand in the way of the evil and protect his people, but will Mike be able to harness his power in time? That's a really detailed synopsis there. And Mike's character in this is very much, you know, he's assimilated into... American culture, and he's kind of separated himself from his old tribe. Now, I was initially into this one because I really like Native American films in general, and especially if we get a good horror film. The problem with Shadow of the Hawk is it's not really a horror film at all, and it's much more of an adventure film, and I think that's what, you know, the tags on Letterbox do say adventure and then horror. And I agree with that. It's much more of an adventure film. The problem is here is you do have some situations that could be horror in other movies. But in Shadow of the Hawk, there's never really any doubt that these characters are in danger. There are scenes where that are just incredible and incredible in a way that are, you know, hard to believe that they were put on film. Um, you know, there's a part where this guy's wrestling a bear. There's a part where a force field is put up and a car crashes into it. There's a lot of these adventure touch points in here, you know, crossing a rope bridge, all that kind of stuff. And Shadow of the Hawk doesn't really do it for me. It's the same as Dark August. There are some cool moments. I do like the aforementioned black car that is kind of following these people. And there is this, you know, evil sorceress. And some of that stuff can be pretty cool. And also the relationship between Mike and uh, Marine, that's all right as well. And I do like the character of Old Man Hawk. I really do. The characters are probably the best part of this movie. But it just feels too much. I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's just like there's no stakes. There's no uh, consequences in this film. You know the main characters are going to come out on top. 
it's more of like an Indiana Jones than it is something in the horror realm. And I think that's what you're going to get here. I think your mileage is going to vary on that. I'm just wasn't looking for that type of movie. So this one was kind of a disappointment to me. I would give it in the same range as Dark August of that 5.5. And you can check this one out on Tubi. But honestly, as someone who was looking for some Native American horror, it just didn't fit the bill. Now, speaking of Native American horror, one that I didn't have down on my list here but came out a couple years later was The Manitou. Now, I didn't get to this one because I wasn't sure if it was folk horror or not, but I do want to check this one out somewhere down the line. I know it was recommended by uh, Nathan Bartlebob, and I've heard some things about it over the years. And I will check out The Manitou. I just didn't have time um, to fit it in with all these other watches I was doing. It didn't really help that it wasn't on a streaming service for free. It was kind of, you know, a lot of these other movies were on free streaming services, and I'm kind of pushing a lot in at one time, and I didn't want to rent it to that point. But I will watch The Manitou and get to that. Uh, but that's another probably borderline Native American folk horror film. In 1977, we have one called Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. I haven't heard very good things about Deathbed. But yeah, I I was almost curious enough to check that one out, but I just didn't this time around. In 1978, I have one I want to talk about here for a little while, and it's the TV movie The Dark Secret of Harvest Home. So this is directed by Leo Penn, runs for 240 minutes total. And I think I watched this one on YouTube. There's a pretty bad quality version of this on YouTube. And the synopsis here is, and see if this sounds familiar, a New York commercial artist and his wife and daughter moved to a quiet, rustic New England village they visited during their travels, only to find themselves mixed up in a ritualistic lifestyle of foreboding secrets. Yeah, that should sound pretty familiar, and you'll have to forgive me if all these kind of run together, because a lot of them follow the same type of plot. Dark Secret of Harvest Home stands out to me, though. And they moved to this community, which is seemingly run uh, by Betty Davis, who's playing uh, Widow Fortune. And one thing you'll notice in this society is it's kind of a matriarchy. It's kind of run by uh, the women. You don't necessarily get that at first, but uh, women have a lot of power in this town. And that's a cool aspect of this. But so... <laughs> Two out, 240 minutes. This is a long, long TV film, miniseries type thing. The negatives are mainly, you know, for the first hour, I was almost debating on turning this thing off because it is very slow and it's very slow build. And unlike some other miniseries that I've seen, this one really takes its time to unfold. When you get there, though, I think that's I think that's my main takeaway with this one. My main drawback on the dark secret of Harvest Home is that it is very plodding at points and just takes a long time to get going. The fascinating thing, though, is this is set in this community where they have all these different I don't know if I want to call them rituals, but they have all these different um superstitions and festivals and all these different things you know they crown something called the harvest king 
it's really fascinating looking into this almost like a pagan culture that they're living in a very much in touch with nature and the earth cult in the good and bad ways, I would say. And there's some really good stuff that happens in this uh, TV movie, mini series event, whatever you want to call it. But there's also a lot of dull moments. Again, I have to go back to that. And I think ultimately there is a reveal that I'm not going to get anywhere near into because I don't want to spoil anything. But I'll say the reveal on one hand, it's kind of cool. And on the other hand, it was kind of disappointing and a letdown because there is a lot of buildup in this. And I don't necessarily think it pays off. But you do have some good characters in this and some of the the mythos and all that created around this town. It's pretty cool. I really did enjoy myself while watching this movie. And yeah, there are some negatives here and there. And I think I think it's going to be a hard sell for a lot of people, honestly, uh, with the poor quality of the video that you're watching, um, which doesn't really add to the fact that it's boring and low qualities at points. But there there are really cool things in this one. There's some really cool moments. And I would recommend it for that um, myself. I'm not too high on it, honestly. It's probably like a 6.5 for me. But this, as opposed to a lot of the other ones I'm talking about, is definitely worth checking out if you can stomach what this is trying to do. There are some, I don't know if I would say, I, I guess there are some moments of shock. But you know with a TV movie, it can only go so far. So I would say if you read about the dark secret of Harvest Home a little bit, and it seems like something you would be interested in, then go for it. But if you get bored easily, if you're a clock watcher, I don't know if this is necessarily for you because it it does have a lot of a slow buildup. But uh, there, there are some cool horror moments in the end. But that's all I wanted to say about that one. It is a commitment, just no going in. And I recently watched another TV, like two-parter thing like this was. And that was also kind of a slog. So yeah, I get it. Some of these some of these TV two-part events were better, maybe aired on TV, but hey, it's not bad. So we get into 1980, I want to talk about something just really briefly, and that is John Carpenter's The Fog. And I think this fits into folk horror in the fact that there is uh, this legend around the town and it's kind of its own, you know, made up folk story, of course. But the founding of the town and then the real story behind it, I think that flirts with the line of folk horror. I would uh, definitely put it in more of the category of folk tale type movie. And I don't know if it's fully in folk horror, but hey, I wanted to mention that one. Then you have one called Burned at the Stake, which I didn't get to. This doesn't seem like very many people have seen it. Uh, it's probably pretty hard to find. But in 1682 in Salem, Massachusetts, young Ann Putnam accuses several residents of being witches, and they are tried and put to death. In 1980, young Lorene Graham is on a school outing to the Salem Witch Museum when a wax figure of a man from 1692 comes to life and accosts her. So I'm going to stop there with the synopsis. I haven't seen this one. I am interested in seeing this one. If I can find it somewhere, I might be able to find it somewhere. But I didn't get to that one. That is in 1981. But then we had one that I did get to. 
And that is Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. So this is another 1981 film. And the synopsis is, after her husband dies of mysterious circumstances, a widow becomes increasingly paranoid of the neighboring religious community that may have diabolical plans for her. And this was one of my favorites that I saw in this string of like U.S. folk horror. I didn't know what to expect from Wes Craven. I know a lot of times in his career, for me at least, he's been up and down. Sometimes I really enjoy his films, sometimes I don't. But this is cool because it takes that angle of the Amish. And there's an Amish community, you know, of course, complete with Michael Berryman in it. And... They are very strict in their religious views and how they view other people. And it turns out that this woman and her husband have a connection to that community. And I don't want to get into that too much, but this one's really cool. You have the main players here are essentially the husband and wife. um, And then you have a mother and daughter. And finally, you have the Amish community. And those are the main players. And it's all about this mysterious of, you know, who is picking off these people and is it you know something supernatural is it the Amish what's going on and I really like that because we don't see I don't think we see the Amish in film a lot but I think they're a good example of folk horror and especially when you look back you know that heritage of the first settlers and Puritans and everything like that I don't think the Amish were too far off of that so I really do like that angle here and I like the story and the characters. I think that's so well done. And Craven does such a good job of directing this film. I would give Deadly Blessing around a seven or so. And I would say you absolutely need to check this one out, especially if you're a Wes Craven fan. Uh, you can find it on Tubi. So pretty easy to find, honestly. And uh, yeah, I was really surprised at this one. You know, knowing Wes Craven directed it going in uh, was something for sure. But I still wasn't sure that a I was going to like it or anything, but uh, Deadly Blessings is one of the good ones. And so is another one, the next one I want to talk about from 1983 called The Devonsville Terror. So this was another one that I caught on Shudder. This was directed by uh, Yuli Lommel, I think. And the synopsis is, Dr. Worley investigates a 300-year-old witch's curse in the New England town of Devonsville. Three liberated, assertive women move into town, which angers the bigoted, male-dominated town fathers. So this one's really cool. When we talk about the doctor, I don't think the doctor is the focus in this. Uh, Dr. Worley, who is played by Donald Pleasance, who plays both a different version of Donald Pleasance and kind of a similar version of Donald Pleasance. Um, I really like him in this. And the affliction that he is under is pretty... It's not something I've really heard of, and I love that angle of it. But this opens up, and you see a flashback to 300 years earlier when they are executing these witches, and it's pretty gnarly and more brutal than I was expecting, honestly. And I liked that opening. And then we get to you see the new school teacher is moving into town, who is played by Susanna Love, and that is Ginny Scanlon. We also have a radio host who is in town and kind of giving women love advice and is very much like it says, a liberated, assertive woman 
who is threatening the male dominance in this town. And then you've got a woman who is, I don't, I can't remember if she's from a college or not, but she's taking samples um, from the water and they're afraid that she's going to expose them. So the school teacher also is teaching stuff that maybe they don't want their children learning. So they all feel threatened by these women and given their history, they all kind of revert back to their witches. But I love the I love the characters in the story in this one. And this was uh, next to Deadly Blessing. I mean, this is one that I liked more than Deadly Blessing and was probably the. Uh, I, I can't remember if there's anything else. This is probably my favorite of all the ones that I caught this time around for the U.S. films. And I wasn't expecting that at all, but um, the story and the way it plays out is great. Then you have, of course, Paul Wilson, who plays the Walter Gibbs character, and he is magnificent in that role. I think he embodies perfectly what that role was supposed to be and does an incredible job in that. I like Jenny Scanlon's character as well. Again, Donald Pleasance is great. And this whole town that has these weird uh, superstitions and things going on under the surface, uh, and those just kind of get drug up uh and then we get a pretty shocking conclusion i would say i think it pulls itself together at the end and really delivers a great horror film here and a great witch film if you haven't seen it and you haven't seen any of these films deadly blessing and the devonsville terror are definitely two i would recommend um, i'd give the devonsville terror like a 7.5 out of 10 i think and it's a high recommendation for me you definitely need to get to that one uh, next up in 83 is one called Eyes of Fire, which I'm not going to talk about a whole lot. So Nathan Bartle, I think he really enjoys this film. Um, myself, I've watched it twice now, and it's just not for me. But it is, I will say, a very different take on the witch film. And you know, I can get into this. I'll probably be getting into this on an episode of Horror Movie Podcast, but... 1984, you have Children of the Corn. I'm not going to talk too much about that one. Everyone kind of knows about that. I think that's a classic U.S. folk horror film. Classic in the sense that it's, you know, one of the most well-known. I like it myself. I don't think it's necessarily a great movie, but it's a really good movie. Then we have one called The Enchanted. And the synopsis on this one is, Royce returns home to an American outback to look after a house that was once his late father's. At first, welcomed back by a long family friend, Booker T., Royce later falls in love with a mysterious woman from a strange family, and Booker T. warns Royce to be careful of how close he gets. So I love that synopsis. Haven't seen this one, but I uh, will definitely make time to get to that one at some point. Then we have Angel Heart, and... I haven't seen Angel Heart in a long time. I probably should have rewatched it for these episodes. But that is a film starring Mickey Rourke and Robert De Niro. And it's about a private detective named Harry Angel, played by Rourke, who's ordered by the mysterious Louis Cipher, who is uh, played by De Niro, to go on a mission to find a missing person. His routine failure soon leads to a bloody spar with himself as he goes on a supernatural journey into his own soul. So Angel Heart's one that I think is very underrated and not talked about enough. It is set in Louisiana for a lot of it, and I love that. You're automatically getting points for that. But I'm not going to talk too much about Angel Heart because I haven't seen it in a long time. 
I do, however, want to talk about one that is very similar called The Believers that came out the same year. And The Believers deals with a very similar subject matter. I think these two, when you put them together with Serpent and the Rainbow, which would come out the next year, and I think you really have a trifecta of kind of voodoo or hoodoo or black magic films from the U.S. And with the believers here, you have mourning the accidental death of his wife and having just moved to New York with his young son, laconic police psychologist Cal Jamison is reluctantly drawn into a series of grisly ritualistic murders involving the immolation of two youths. So in this one, you have Martin Sheen starring and... He is kind of drug into this world of these child murders that are going on since he is a psychologist. And I think he does an incredible job in this. The What it mentions in the synopsis about the death of his wife is in the opening scene, and it's pretty intense. It's a pretty crazy scene. I wasn't prepared for that. But of course, he does have a new romance, and uh, that comes in later. And I, I do like the relationship between the two. I think the characters in this film are so good and the way that they bring in the, I think they call it uh it's the Santeria is what it's referred to in this. And um, the way they bring that into the story is great. I think some of it gets a little uh, over the top and a little bit much at points, but I was really surprised by this one and the way that his son is brought into this and children are involved in this in general is pretty creepy, and I really was surprised by and really liked The Believers. I think it fits with those other two I mentioned, Angel Heart and The Serpent and the Rainbow. And that ending, you're you're not going to be prepared for that ending, I would say. But I would still give it around in the 7.5 area and say it's definitely worth checking out if you've never seen it. It seems like a lot more people were aware of this one and had watched it than I had, but... Hey, I'm glad I finally got to it. And uh, that one you can check out on Tubi, if I didn't already say. Up next in 87 is really one segment of a movie, and that is Creepshow 2 with Old Chief Woodenhead, which I was really a fan of. I um, surprisingly liked Creepshow 2, a lot of it. Yeah, that's a that's a good one, I think. Uh, looking forward, 1988, uh, you have Pumpkinhead which I think is a very good folklore tale. You know, it's set out in the uh, definitely a rural area and you have someone calling upon a witch's power to bring a curse and this cursed creature out. I think that definitely fits the bill of folklore, even though maybe it's not necessarily usually thought of that. Um, I haven't seen Pumpkinhead in a while. I need to rewatch that one this October, I think. Then you have Pet Cemetery, which I think, you know, you get... Enough of like the folk tale and all that stuff with Judd telling about his story. And I think you definitely get that folk horror vibe in places. I think with this one and both the remake, uh, but that was 1989. And of course, I don't need to really say much about Pet Cemetery. One that came up from 1990 called Grim Prairie Tales hit the trail to terror. I had never heard of this one and I haven't seen it, but it seems like it is like a Western anthology. So... That might be one to check out if you're interested in that. In 92, we have Clear Cut, which I think Nathan and I both talked about on our 91, 92 episodes. We had it in different years, but this is a Canadian film, and it is a uh, 
it is about a Native American, and that's that's a crazy film. That one <laughs> that one doesn't hold back. If you haven't seen Clear Cut, uh, you should definitely check that one out. It is in that um, all the haunts be ours set from Severin, and then I think falling into like the urban legend type things, you have like Blair Witch Project, which came out in '99. Uh, you have Sleepy Hollow, which came out in '99. And those are both definitely based on Sleepy Hollow is based on American literature. Probably the like I talked about before, one of the greatest American folk literature stuff you will see. And then with the Blair Witch Project, I think it's kind of a fake like urban legend. It's something they made up within it, but it does deal with a witch and it does have that, you know, we're going to follow this urban legend thing. So I think those qualify as well as something like Darkness Falls, which sets up the mythos of the tooth fairy i'm not going to get too far into those because i think those are a little adjacent to this uh, i would say the village falls under this just of how it deals with the is it's kind of like a period piece in a way and it deals with like a very strict society where um, you know they tell tales of something out in the woods and and it really does have this old school feel and this kind of almost cult feeling to it. So I think that one definitely fits. And then in 2005, you have something like the skeleton key, which again, set in Louisiana. I love that. You know, I love that. Um, And that deals with a little bit of like the voodoo black magic type stuff as well. Then you have something like uh, lucky McKee's the woods, which I am a fan of, but haven't seen in a long time. That one came out in 2006. I don't want to talk too much about that one just because I haven't seen it in a while. Skip ahead to 2013, you have something called Jugface, which I think I've heard of, but haven't seen. The synopsis to that one is, when a supernatural pit worshipped by a remote community in the woods demands a new blood sacrifice, a young woman struggles to find a way to survive as the pit lashes out in anger. And that sounds cool. It doesn't seem like it has great uh, reception from a lot of people I follow over on Letterboxd. But you can watch that on Prime Video and Tubi, so it seems easy to check out, and I probably should do that at some point. Something that fits in the folktale urban legend, I think, in 2016, uh, category is Hell House LLC. I'm not going to get too much into Hell House LLC, because I probably want to dedicate some more time to that in the franchise later on. But I think it has that backstory and, you know, everything that has happened in the history of that hotel. I think it has enough there to make it kind of a folk horror. And I don't really want to talk about uh, many other ones. I will touch on, since I'm already on Hell House LLC, is something like Butterfly Kisses, which is definitely like an urban legend found footage movie that you have there. Uh, you also have something like Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which I think falls under that. And yeah, so that's all I want to do with the U.S. stuff, because I will have a section on the modern trend of folk horror and how that kind of took a turn and ramped up in popularity and got folk horror really back into the mainstream, Uh, which I, I don't know if it was ever in the mainstream before, but it's definitely front and center in horror these days. So I want to talk about that phenomenon separately, and I will do so later. But that's really all I had on U.S. and Canada folk horror. If there's anything I missed, let me know. I'm sure there are some out there. I tried to put together a decent-sized list of this. 
But let me know if you've seen any of these, if you are going to check any of these out for the first time. I'd love to hear your thoughts on them. So let's go ahead and move on to the next part of the episode. So it's time once again for another Werewolf Rankings. And this one, being in this October series of episodes, is a folk horror-themed or focused one. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the film Wilchitsa, or She-Wolf, or The Wolf. One of those. It's under several different names. But this is a Polish film that is in that All the Haunts Be Ours set. Directed by Marek Pajstrak. And the synopsis is, In 19th century Poland, a man is cursed by his wife Marina on her deathbed. Her evil spirit then haunts him in the form of a she-wolf. In She-Wolf, we get this officer. And he's basically called by his brother, I believe, back to his home. His wife is dying, and she was pregnant. The opening of this is it's a very weird and out there kind of scene. It's very um, it really sets the tone for the film, I think. Now, whether it would live up to that tone, I don't know. But you get a very disturbing scene at first with his wife. She dies. She curses him. And he goes to take on this and, you know, against his brother's wishes, he goes to take on this job serving this nobleman. And this nobleman is married to a much younger wife. And you can tell that she's doing something with her, uh, one of her servants or maids or whatever you want to call them. You can tell she's fooling around with her. Uh, and then it gets even worse later because this woman is fooling around with this other soldier. And yeah, at the same time, you've got this guy. He's, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to set up a little bit of plot details here, but he goes uh, when he first gets there, he has to accompany this guy, this nobleman, on a journey as their protection because there's some 
I don't know what specific time period this is set in, but oh, and I should mention this film came out in 1983, or that is the date anyway. But there's some political situation going on. This nobleman fears for his life. He escorts him somewhere, and then I don't think he shows up for a long time or maybe the rest of the film. I'm trying to remember that. But anyway, this soldier whose wife died, he and who is our main character here, continues to see a wolf. And he's convinced that it's a she-wolf or you know some kind of werewolf that's out there to get him. But when he, get, when he gets back, he basically lives out by himself in this little shack, and he's left to put up with whatever's going on with the, the wife of the nobleman inside and her state of affairs and all that. And that's, that's a general summary of what's going on. Now, that might sound jumbled and all over the place, and that's because this film is kind of weird and jumbled and hard to understand. And I I mean, I've seen other movies from Europe around this same time and earlier that are this same kind of folk horror film. But this is this is a weird one because I want to say I like it and I do like it to an extent. I surely do. But it's just so all over the place and confusing that it kind of fails to grab my attention. And if you're looking at this as a werewolf movie, I don't think it necessarily succeeds in the modern sense of the word. It, it is maybe a much more folk horror approach to werewolf where you're getting a slow burn. You're getting a slow moving film. You're getting one that doesn't always make sense, whether that's a culture barrier or some other type of barrier with just poor filmmaking. I'm not sure, but it is kind of all over the place. So know that going in, but you know, for the first part of this movie until he gets to the nobleman's house, I'm on board and then I get a little lost and I'm still a little lost because it's jumping here and there. But I think by the end of it, I did like it. The ending is really good. I think it puts a perfect exclamation point on itself at the end. But getting there is a little bit of a slog. I think there's some good imagery in this film. I think there's I think it is shot well. It's just maybe piecing it together doesn't necessarily make all that much sense. And I know there are people out there who probably like this one more than I do. I think Ian Urza does. But I'm just going to call it The Wolf, I think is the name that it goes by on the internet. It's a weird bag. I think the performances are fine. I really like the performance of the nobleman's wife or whoever she is. (laughs) There's some... I think she has the best scenes in the film apart from that opening with his wife. So I think the women really steal the show, even though, you know, I like our main character to an extent. I don't think he's a great person. I don't think he's done a lot of good, but he's that he gives the vibe of that typical, like he almost gives like a Kurt Russell vibe, honestly, a Kurt Russell in tombstone. Let's just, that's the the vibe I was getting from this guy. And I do like that, but there's not really much to his character other than, you know, him kind of not being the greatest to his wife. And I don't know, as far as a recommendation, I'd say if you're into this kind of weird folklore stuff and you kind of like the atmosphere and that over a traditional story structure, I think it could be for you. If you're not, if you get kind of bored like that, you want a straightforward film or a straightforward werewolf film, especially Maybe you can take a pass on this one. It's very easy to find. It is on Shutter and Tubi. 
at least as the time of this recording. And I think there's a lot of merit to this one. And I did. I struggled because I I both enjoyed it and found it very confusing and impenetrable at other times. But overall, I think I would give this one about a six. And it is a low priority recommendation until you, unless you are really into the folk horror, the slow burns, and a little bit of the fringe stuff, the weirder stuff. And that's that's who I would recommend this to the most. Other than that, I, I don't know if the film is worth your time or not, but you have to make that decision for yourself. Again, I really enjoyed stuff. You, you know what? I'm going to bump it up to a 6.5 because there are some really good moments in this film. So I'm going to go ahead and settle at a 6.5. But I still say it's a very tentative watch based off of your sensibilities. So going off the rankings right now, this one would be at the top. So it's above the Wolfman and the Beast Must Die for now. That's going to do it for this installment of the werewolf rankings, and I'm going to go ahead and keep moving on with the episode. Okay, so now I want to get into something that's a little more controversial when you're talking about folk horror, but I think this one needs to be included, and I don't think I hear a lot of people talking about it. And again, I don't remember much of the documentary, the um, Days Dark and Woodlands Bewitched, or whatever it was called. I don't remember a ton of that. They might have went into that in here as well, so... If they did, then I apologize, but I still think it's not something people think of when they talk about folk horror. And that is the urban legend, or really like a folk tale. And I think if you put it in that context, it makes more sense. But there are an endless number of films that are based on folklore, or based on urban legends. And I think these are important to talk about. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to run down a list of urban legends and ones that I find interesting and talk a little bit about them. And some of these are very, uh, very chilling if you go and read about them. I love that. I love looking into these urban legends and these in which now we would know them as like creepypasta, things like that are coming around. So I want to get into that and how it's evolved over time and just run down some of these urban legends and, of course, talk about a lot of the movies that have urban legends on in them. So I think one part of urban legends that we need to talk about are the cryptids. So there are a ton of these cryptids throughout the world. Um, I think I'm most familiar with the ones in the U.S. So... We've got, of course, the classic Bigfoot, and there have been a number of different movies about Bigfoot. You know, whether that's Exist or Willow Creek, I think there's one called Monstrous from 2020 as well. But these are basically 
Bigfoot or Sasquatch or those types of movies. And in my experience, none of them are really that good, at least how I feel about them. But the one that's always interested me is the Jersey Devil. And, you know, the Jersey Devil comes from this folklore that it was Mother Leeds' 13th child. This, of course, was in the uh, Pine Barrens of New Jersey. And she cursed this 13th child and declared that it would be the devil. And then, you know, when the baby was born, it was a normal child, um, but then transformed into the creature with hooves and a goat's head and bat wings and a forked tail. And, you know, the <laughs> the child basically just took leave from there and is set to is said to um, haunt the Pine Barrens. Um, there were many sightings and things like this. That's the the interesting things about this is when you get these phenomenon where there are just sightings of these cryptids all kind of bunched together. But you get a lot of these, uh, you know, people see this thing and report it. And I don't know how these things get started, but that's essentially where it springs up and goes into. And then you have movies based off this one, like The Barons and um, The Last Broadcast, which is a found footage movie from the 90s. And yeah, and you even had a video game. I remember, I think it was on PlayStation 1 was uh, Jersey Devil. And you've got a hockey team named after him. I mean, this is a pretty... Uh, a pretty dug in tradition here. And the Jersey Devil's pretty interesting as a creature and how it got its origin. But then we go from the Pine Barrens over to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and you have the Mothman, who is one of my absolute favorite cryptids. And, you know, this coincides with a famous real tragedy when a bridge collapsed in West Virginia. And, you know, this all starts with these couples who reportedly saw this creature with glowing eyes that was flying near the old World War II munitions plant. And then it goes from there and it goes into maybe Mothman is this arbiter of things to come. He's a warning. He's coming to warn people what's going to happen. And of course, there were a bunch of Mothman sightings before this bridge collapsed and it's so interesting, and, you know, they still have Mothman festivals every year in Point Pleasant. Very, very interested in Mothman. Um, Mothman Prophecies is the only one that I can think of movie based off of Mothman, but, yeah, I, I love the Mothman, and maybe it's not just because it's from my area, but... And speaking of my area, you have one that's much, very much lesser known, but the Ohio Grassman you know, who was first spotted in Minerva, Ohio, and kind of has been, you know, there were sightings all along the Ohio River and everything like that, but um, basically just a Bigfoot. And I think those sprout up all over the place, but uh, different Bigfoot-type creatures or Sasquatch-type creatures. But then if you go up to Wisconsin, you've got the Hodag, of course, which is like this kind of like a bull creature. That has spikes on its back. The hodag's pretty cool, but uh, I don't know too much about the hodag. You've got, if we want to talk about the Native American type stuff, you've got the Wendigo, which is basically a legend of an evil spirit possessing someone with, you know, ill intentions and, of course, cannibalism, because that's a big thing in 
Native American legends and stuff is the cannibalism, and that's this what you get with the Wendigo. You also have these skinwalkers who are, I believe, it originated from. They're supposed to be medicine men who turned evil and are able to shape shift into different creatures, and those are both really cool. I love those. I wish we had more stuff about that. I think there's a movie called Skinwalkers, and there's definitely you know we have antlers. There's about the Wendigo. Um, the video game Until Dawn deals with the Wendigo stuff. So there are some about that kind of stuff. Then we have, we're talking about, you know, Canada and the Ontario area. You've got the Mugwump or, you know, Old Tessie. Uh, essentially just a lake monster. There are a lot of these as well. That's the funny thing is you have a lot of Sasquatch and you have a lot of lake monsters. And uh, Mugwump is definitely one of those don't know i don't know if there's been doesn't seem like there's been you know we don't have a lot of these especially like even with the loch ness monster doesn't seem like we have very many movies about them but uh you do have the bell witch which is um a legend that comes from tennessee and apparently this was like in the 1800s and this family was attacked by this um entity that was invisible and could speak could affect the environment and could shape shift. So that's essentially what you have there. I don't know a ton about that one either. And then we have the uh, the Boo Hags, which originated in the 1840s. And this is a Gullah and Hoodoo culture cryptid or mythic or urban legend, uh, folktale, whatever you want to call it. But it's about evil souls that become skinless creatures after death and take other people's skin for a ride. So that's pretty creepy. And you've got the Chupacabra, which is a Mexican legend, which essentially means goat sucker in Spanish. And these are like kind of like vampire creatures that, uh, you know, attack and drink the blood of livestock and goats and things like that. So. Uh, chupacabras are pretty cool. I like those. You've got the folk monster, which is another Bigfoot type creature. This one is specifically relevant to horror because you have the movie The Legend of Boggy Creek, which this is based on. And I believe this is in um, Arkansas. This one originates from. You've got the skunk ape, which is another version of Sasquatch. And that one is in Florida. And then you've got the the goat man from uh, Maryland and the goat man essentially just seems to be like a a fawn or a satyr or something like that. But it's said to have, you know, led to the deaths of dogs throughout the Maryland area. I don't know a ton on that one either, but yeah, I think that about does it for the cryptids. Okay, now I want to move into something really fun and talk about some of these urban legends and folk tales. Some of them are maybe you would think are conspiracy theories, but uh, it all falls within the same thing. And it's all stories that have been told and passed down through one way or another, whether that's the old way of, you know, telling your kids not to go to make out point or whether that's the the new way of, you know, creepy pastas that have been shared and proliferated through the internet and podcasts and things like that. So first off, and a big one in this one, this is why I say conspiracy theory, is something like Area 51 or Roswell, New Mexico and all this stuff. You know, this is 
a big part of the United States lore. I mean, there's been countless shows and movies and games and songs and everything else about Area 51 and about um, extraterrestrial life. And that's always been a big point of contention um, in the U.S., a big discussion. Is there other life out there? And, you know, is the government hiding stuff out in the deserts of New Mexico? Maybe. I don't know. But that's always been a big one. There's not much else to that. I mean, you pretty much know what's going on with Area 51. The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, which originated in the 1960s, and this was probably to keep babysitters vigilant and to make sure they're checking the children and all this stuff. And this would become famous in something like uh, When a Stranger Calls, most prominently, although it has been used in other films as well. And, you know, just the babysitter horror film in general has been proliferated. But, you know, if you're not familiar, that's I don't know how you how you wouldn't be at this point. But babysitter gets a call from downstairs asking if she's checked on the children. Uh, Turns out at the end, the killer is in the house and has murdered the children or hasn't. It depends on the various tellings and anything like that. But that is essentially that one. Next up was an interesting one. Um, This one's from Poland, and this is called the Black Volga. And it's essentially a black limousine that abducts and murders people. Some say driven by Satan himself. Others say, you know, driven by a communist, things like that. It's very, it it runs the gamut. Um, And this was introduced in the 60s and 70s in Poland. So... That almost fits in with stuff we'll talk about later with like, I mean, Poland's fear of Russia for sure plays into that and the the Russian like absorption of Poland or what they've tried to in the past, especially at that time period where it was very unsettling and on shaky ground. Yeah, I could see where that legend would pop up. I wonder if that is still something in Poland today that gets talked about because much like the babysitter one. I don't know if it's as relevant anymore, but hey, uh, that's a pretty cool one. So next up, we have the Black Eyed Children, which there is a film. I mean, most of these urban legends and mythical creatures you'll find a film about. It's called Black Eyed Children. Let me in. I'm sure it's not very good quality. I can't comment on that, though, because I haven't seen it. But this one centers on and I think it originated in 1996 and it was in like a Texas newspaper or something that someone described coming across these, but basically these are children, uh, normal looking children seemingly that will come up and knock on your door or will come up to your car while it's stopped and knock and ask to be let in. And you'll notice eventually that they do have just completely black eyes. There's nothing else to your eyes. It's just all black. You know, some people say they're aliens trying to reach out. Some people say they're, you know, demons but either way you know it's said not to let them in if you see little children knocking at your door maybe maybe i the funny thing about these is i really like the idea of some of these things existing i know they probably don't yeah but if there's that chance out there i think that small little chance of these types of things existing both terrify me and excite me because i do like 
I love urban legends. I love creepy pastas. I love all this stuff. And it's probably because I have that small strand in the back of my mind that says, yeah, maybe there's a 1% chance that this stuff actually exists. And I'm here for it. But I'm also terrified by it. So me particularly, I like this stuff. Um, if you're finding this boring or anything, please move on. But I am going to continue to go down a list here. And we will get back to how these relate to film as we go along. But And next up, we have Bloody Mary, which is essentially, you know, very old urban legend and myth. And this can be found, I'm trying to think, can't remember if it's the Haunting Hour or if it's another R.L. Stein show. That's ah, killing me. Maybe it's Are You Afraid of the Dark? I don't know, but there is a Bloody Mary type episode, I believe. Um, I'm trying to think back now and I can't remember. But anyway, this is also, I think, in my day and age, because really you go into the bathroom, you say the name in the mirror so many times. And in my generation, that had kind of morphed into Candyman. And this had, I think, a big influence on that in Candyman setting up. I think there's a couple things in Candyman, right? But... Yeah, this is this is very much morphed to saying Candyman in the mirror. I can only imagine what people what kids do now. I don't know. But I think that is definitely a big one in changing this urban legend is the film Candyman. Which is a very good and I think fits right into this category, both um, the original and the remake, because Candyman and I'll just say right now he does have a hook for a hand and he also has this you know mirror thing he's kind of made up of a bunch of urban legends and Candyman himself is an urban legend in the movie. Anyway, next up we have the bunny man and the bunny man came out of the seventies and is set in Virginia and is about a man dressed as a bunny who murders people with an ax. And that one has its own movie adaptations as well. I haven't seen them. Yeah, that's another one, which I find pretty interesting and also I actually kind of believe that one. That one's the most easy to believe of a lot of these. But then we have Cropsy, and Cropsy's had no shortage of films set around his legend, something like The Burning and Madman, something like the uh, the film Cropsy, which is kind of like a pseudo documentary from 2009. There have been a ton of Cropsy related legends. And this is like, a, I think, a New York, New Jersey type thing. But uh, Cropsy is pretty prominent these days, or was prominent at a the time. Then we have the Dark Watchers, which is something I didn't know about. And this is a Spanish legend about these giant-sized, featureless silhouettes that watch travelers from atop this specific mountain range. And, uh, you know, no one's ever seen them up close, but it's said to, you know, if you're going through this mountain range, uh, you might see them standing at the top of it. And that kind of reminds me of the um, the Hell Valley sky tree from the Mario stuff, where in Mario Galaxy 2, you know, there are shadowy figures at the top of this cliffside. And I was definitely reminded of that when I saw something about the Dark Watchers. This is one I never heard of either. The death number 999-9999. And there's apparently a movie with just that number sequence um, that was put out. It's a, I think it's a time movie. 
yeah anyway it is a horror movie um but this is a number you call after midnight that grants any wish you want but you die afterward and i think that's a pretty interesting premise for a legend i think as the 90s and 2000s hit we had a lot of and probably even the 80s as well had a lot of phone based urban legends you had a lot of technology based urban legends and i like that because this is a simpler time for phones when you can just dial a number you know you wouldn't have to worry about all the other stuff around it but i think technology progressed so fast that it's only and we see that today with ai horror and we see that with any kind of that stuff but technology just progressed so fast that it's easy to see the dangers and fears and threats within it because it's so much unknown to us. Like, it's there. We can use it. We don't know how a lot of this stuff works. Yeah, and it's been so exponential in the past, you know, several decades that technology has progressed. So I love any urban legend springing up around that. Even stuff like you talk about, like, pirate radio broad or pirate um, TV or radio broadcasts where they're hacking in the signal and something like broadcast signal intrusion or something like um, Candle Cove, I believe it's called the creepypasta that was made into the the TV series on sci fi. Just different things there where it's about seeing these haunted things within analog media. I love that kind of stuff, but I'm digressing here. The Devil's Tramping Ground, and this is in North Carolina. And it's a spot in the woods where nothing grows, and it's said that the devil tramps over that spot, and that's why nothing grows. And it's, I think it's like a small circular area, but that's a cool one that pops up. I mean, it's weird that nothing grows in that one circular area. Yeah, I love ones like that. Then we have Hanako-san, and this is a Japanese one, and there's been, I know, I don't know if there's been any movies, but I know there's been a lot of anime about Hanako, and basically it's a young girl who haunts Japanese bathrooms, and man, I love the Japanese. They have some of the best and most creative urban legends. They get really out there, but uh, you basically have to go to a third floor of a school, go to the girl's restroom on that floor, knock three times on the third stall, and ask if Hanako-san is present. So that's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a very interesting one, but I love I love that one. You've got and I as I was going through and looking back here, the hanging munchkin in the Wizard of Oz. And there are a ton of things about the Wizard of Oz. I mean, if you want to go back and watch, I think what is that, the Cursed Films series on Shudder did one on the Wizard of Oz, I believe. And that was I mean, that production had a lot going on. So that's that's a curious one, an interesting one to check out. I um, I personally heard this one a long time ago, along with other things like, you know, if you look on the cover of The Little Mermaid, there's a penis on it. And the thing with the three men and a baby, there's all kinds of these legends and things going on around film. And I think that would be interesting to cover one day as well to get into the quote unquote curses placed on films. I know people have gotten into that before. But also just the like the number of urban legends and myths that have sprung up around films. And I think that one in The Wizard of Oz is very prominent and one of the most one of the most well known. Talked about it a little bit earlier, but the hook hand killer slash the escaped mental patient 
So this one's told in a couple different ways, and I think this one is used to deter kids from going to, you know, make out point, lover's lane, whatever you want to call it, and doing their business, you know. And the, there's a couple of these. So one is a couple stops for whatever reason. They hear something um, like a scratching or something like that. So they get in the car, they go home, and when they go home, they find that there's a hook on the, I think they had heard a report about on the radio that there is um, this man with a hook hand or something like that out there. And then they get home, look on the bumper of their car, and there's a hook on it. So they were almost murdered. And then the opposite of that, which is the one that was more prominent with me that I heard a lot, was the escaped mental patient. And in this one, you can maybe think this is going into like Halloween as well. I think Halloween 1978 plays into a lot of urban legends and things like that. I think a lot of those make it up because you have the the story about the car and there's an escaped mental patient and this couple was parked. The boyfriend goes to pee or whatever. And the girl keeps hearing these sounds on the roof that sound like scratching. So she gets in the car and drives off. And I think in a lot of these, she ends up hanging her boyfriend because he was tied up into the tree and his that was his feet kind of scratching at the roof of the car, struggling. And um, when she moves, he ends up hanging. And yeah, that's that's an issue. I love that one. Um, there's a purpose for that one for sure is to keep kids from being out and um, doing, I think, anything really. <laughs> it's really to keep them home. But anyway, that one's been, I think, incorporated into several different movies. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, unfortunately. But then we have Robert Johnson, which isn't something I heard of before. But there's an episode of the Adult Swim show Metalocalypse that very much plays on this. And apparently Robert Johnson was a blues singer and sold his soul to Satan in exchange for his talents. So I love that. There's in that episode of Metalocalypse there, talking about the blues devil, and you gotta sell your soul to the blues devil. And you can learn how to play the guitars, but moving on with that one. So next is the killer in the back seat or high beams. And this is a very famous one. It's you know, someone stops and I think they get gas, or they stop anywhere. And there's a car behind them or a truck behind them that keeps flashing their lights as they go along. And when the person gets home, the person behind them, you know, kind of yells and warns them, hey, there's someone in your back seat. Go inside and call the cops. And they call the police. And it turns out the guy was flashing his high beams because every time he saw the killer would come up out of the back seat, he would flash his high beams. So it would kind of expose that person. And that's a very interesting one. It's definitely one where at some point in time, I was checking my backseat. And I believe this is incorporated in the film Urban Legends, which is a camp favorite of mine. I really do like that slasher film. I'll probably cover that at some point on the show, but I think that one's at play in there. There's a lot of different Urban Legends in there, and that's why I love that one. But we also have one that just chills me and it's about a college student. I don't know what the name of this one is and I couldn't find it when I was looking it up, but it's about a college student who 
you know, she has a roommate and comes back into the room. I don't know if she's out partying or out studying or whatever she's doing. She's out of the room, but her roommate's at home. She comes back in and doesn't turn on the lights and gets into bed and goes to sleep. When she wakes up the next morning, she looks up above her bed and finds the message. And usually it's written in like blood or something. Weren't you glad you didn't turn on the lights and finds her roommate murdered? So I like that one. That's a cool little spine tingling one. <laughs> They're a little bit of a chilling uh, tale, but something like Krampus as well. And you could probably say Santa Claus, um, although we know, you know, Santa Claus drives from something real, but something like Krampus, which is very much like a, you know, if you're bad and this has gained like notoriety in the last, I don't know, 10 years or something, Krampus schnot and all that stuff has come out. But um yeah, if you're a bad kid, you get drug away by Krampus to go do some slave labor or whatever it is. But Krampus is a cool one. The slit mouthed woman is one from Japan. And this woman has a mask over her face. And again, Japan has some of the coolest stuff. I know I get it. I'm a weeb. Yeah, you can make fun of me, whatever. But <laughs> but this slit mouthed woman is um and I'm sure there's been I know there's been a movie with this very title but you come across this person and I think she removes her mask and you see that she's just her mouth has just been slit from ear to ear and it just is wide open and gaping a very creepy image and she asks you if she's if you think she's pretty and if you say yes then she makes you like her if you say no she kills you there are certain things you can do to confuse it. You can, I believe you can like throw money at her and that'll confuse her. And if you say like, you think she's average or normal looking or something like that, that might get you by, but yeah, it's pretty cool that you can reason with this spirit, confuse this spirit to be able to get, get out of there. But yeah, I can't remember if this is in it, but uh, there's a cool game if you haven't played it. And I reviewed it on the show called Ghostwire Tokyo that gets into a lot of these Japanese spirits. I mean, I think there's one about a headless um, schoolgirl who was killed in some way that haunts places. There's a lot of cool and unsettling stuff in that game and in Japanese um, urban legends in general. The Licked Hand is a very creepy one. And this is about a girl who um, is laying in bed and has her arm like hanging over the edge. And she thinks her dog is licking her hand all night. And I can't remember quite how this one goes, but at the end of this, I think there's like a message or something left for her that said like humans lick too or something like that. And apparently the thing was there's was someone under her bed. I don't I can't remember if they murdered someone too. It's very similar to that college student one. But yeah, very, very weird to have someone under your bed licking your hand in general. Lali Arona from uh, Mexico, which is the crying woman and that's been all over the place in movies. There have been so many adaptations of that. If you go back to the 50s and 60s in Mexico, and if you come into current day, there are so many stories around the crying woman that I don't think I need to get into that one too much. Night marchers. Night marchers are cool. They are uh, deceased Hawaiian warriors who, you know, you could, I think you could catch glimpses of them, glimpses of them at night or something, but I remember, I don't know if there's been a movie about this, but there was definitely almost a video game. I think it ended up getting canceled or something. Uh, maybe it's still coming out. I don't know. But it was about the night marchers and the the lore behind that. 
The poison or razor blades in the candy is, of course, a classic Halloween urban legend. Then we have the men in black, which I absolutely love this urban legend. And it's nothing like the movie because I don't because most of the time the men in the black referred to in these stories are not actually government agents. They're just men in black. A lot of the times they're described as like featureless people. They don't have like a lot of defining features. They're just bland people. And I think the first one of this is like someone ran into. I'm, I've got to look this up because I got to get this right because it's very, very haunting. But essentially, I think it started in the 40s when someone was doing UFO investigation and all this stuff. And they were visited repeatedly by men in black suits telling them to stop what they were doing. And you see this all the time throughout history. People claiming when they had when they saw UFOs, they saw anything out of the ordinary and were trying to tell people these men in black would show up, tell them to stop and not tell anyone. And they thought it was government agents. A lot of people theorize these are actually aliens. But um, yeah, I, I love that one. It's very creepy and kind of to go along with that. If you haven't heard of Polybius, Polybus, I don't know how to say it for sure. But it is uh, one of the most. I love it. It's a very much conspiracy theory thing that went on about this game, this arcade game in the 80s that popped up in Washington or Portland. Was it Portland, Oregon? Might have been Portland, Oregon. And these machines would pop up. Someone would just they would just show up. And you would play this game, and after a while, people would be addicted to it, or they would have seizures, or they would have some kind of medical problems, and people, kids would die after playing these. And every week, you would see someone come in in a black suit and go and check the boards of this like they were collecting data on players. And then as soon as they came, they disappeared. So I love this one. This is pretty cool. And it goes along with kind of like the MK Ultra stuff as well. You know, the government running experiments on us, trying to get data and all this other stuff. Uh, and I think that one's creepy. If you um, I'm not doing it justice, but go check out Polybus because that is one of that's consumed me for years. I love that. I love that story. But uh, next up is Robert the Doll. And this one plays into and it'd be similar to like Annabelle with like a haunted doll. Robert the doll, I think, was used in that was the boy, wasn't it? I believe that's what that played into. I don't know, maybe not. But I know Annabelle, at least in the, the Conjuring universe. And then you've got the Spider Bite or the Red Dot, which has been in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark and also The Believers, which is a film that I have talked about on these folk horror episodes. And that is essentially, you know, there's a big red dot that you think is a zit on your face and you go to pop it or it, it pops itself. And there's just a ton of little bugs or spiders that had laid their eggs in there and they're pouring out of your face. The Vanishing Hitchhiker is one where, um, you know, you think there's a hitchhiker on the side of the road, you stop and they're not there or they're in your car and they disappear. You've got the Woman in Black, which is obviously came to life in the Woman in Black films. Which is a piece of uh, and there's been tons of stage plays and things, but that's a uh, UK folklore. And then one, we've got another Japanese one that's been made into a movie, and that's the Red Room Curse. And this is an, an internet urban legend. 
about a red pop-up ad which announces the death of a person who encounters it on their computer screen. And that kind of goes along with, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. There's chain letters that there's been movies about those. I don't know if these are necessarily urban legends, but like One Missed Call, The Ring, that kind of stuff, Ringu. Those are definitely the same type of thing where there's some kind of announcement of death, something triggers it, and they're all centered around some form of technology. So I really like those ones, but I just want to get into a couple creepy pastas really quickly. Or some modern urban legends. I know throughout probably like the 90s and more recently in like 2016, the clown sightings and people seeing clowns everywhere. And that could be real or that could not be. But I think there's been that stuff. I don't know if it popped up because of it or anything like that. Uh, you have the 1990 miniseries. But all the clown sightings and all that have gone on. The back rooms, which is something I didn't know about that Nathan Bartlebaugh informed me about, which is something on 4chan is where it originated in 2019, where you've got all of these, you know, if you do some game right, I don't know, you have to do something right, and if you do it right, you end up in this alternate reality where you're in this liminal spaces. I don't really understand it that well, but that's been a big thing now. The elevator game is something similar, which dates back to Japan in 2008. Um, there is a movie coming out. I might tack a mini review on as soon as it's out onto this one. But uh, if you do a certain amount of steps right in this elevator game, you get transported to another dimension. And one of my favorite video game related ones is the Final Fantasy VIII stuff. And if you haven't played a Final Fantasy game or Final Fantasy VIII, it was a PlayStation 1 game from the late 90s. And it was a role-playing game. But essentially, there's a theory that the main character dies in the middle of the game. Because there's a point where everything is realistic and grounded. The main, uh, the lead female role in this one, she's not really interested in him, has another boyfriend. And there's all these things pointing that lead up to this point where he gets impaled by a spear and spoilers, obviously for final fantasy eight, but he wakes up and he's fine. But from that point on, everything becomes more supernatural and everything becomes crazier. And you actually get the villain starts acting more villainous and they find out these weird circumstances about themselves. And the girl suddenly is falling for this guy. And, then it ends at the end of this in this big, really hallucinatory scene where everything's blurry and events are flashing back. And there's this weird picture of him without a face. He's just got a hole where his face is. And check that. If you can find that ending montage, that's pretty, pretty interesting. But people theorize that that's his life flashing before his eyes as he's finally dying because, you know, everything from that point where he gets seriously wounded one is just his dreams of a dying person, fantasies of a dying person. And I love that one. That one creeps me out a lot. I don't think it's true, but anyway, it it lines up and it sounds good. And then you have creepypasta, which have really proliferated. And I don't have time to get into the dozens and dozens of creepypasta. Um, I like the podcast Creepy, which you can go check out. That used to be, I loved the first 
you know, 100 episodes or so, for the most part, they were hit or miss for sure. But they kind of I don't know if they're just getting worse material or things have changed since they've been part of Bloody Disgusting. But if you go back and listen to that from the start, you can get some really creepy, creepy pastas, things like the uh, the expressionless about. Oh, and a lot of these are based just on a picture. This is just based on a picture from the Internet, and it's about this person without it looks like a mannequin, essentially, that they find. And uh, I'm not going to tell any of these because they they are done much more justice other places. But um, you've got things like Ben Drowned, which is a video game one about a little boy who drowned and he haunts this video game cartridge. You've got you've got some pretty interesting a game called Kill Switch in which, you know, if you die, I think it like erases the game or something like that. I don't I can't remember exactly what that one is, but there's there are a number of creepy pastas. Um, a lot of them have been made into movies. I know the Russian sleep experiment is either getting a movie or has been made into a movie, but I like that podcast a lot, at least what it used to be. And every once in a while, it still hits me with a good one. But if you want to get creeped out, definitely listen to creepy at night before bed, because I've done that before. I wouldn't recommend it. There's other ones like this No Sleep podcast and things like that. But so, yeah, I just wanted to get into a lot of these urban legends and uh, cryptids and things like that, because I think they make up a big part of folk horror. I think they really do. But we don't talk about them in that sense very much. So, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this. And if not, then I I know you moved over to the next segment of this, but I'm going to do the same as well and kick this over to the next part of the episode. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity and I decided Look, to I do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Dude, she needs a therapist. You've been wanting out of this stupid relationship for like a year now. And don't forget about all of the beautiful Swedish women you'll meet in June. Okay, guys. That's not her again. Seriously? Babe, what's happening? Danny. I was so very sorry to hear about what happened. I'm sorry. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through? Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. School! What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. <laughs> How long have you two been together? Just over three and a half years. Four years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? What is it? It has special properties. What am I going through? We just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate. I want to go. Absolutely not. What's happening? I don't know why you invited us. That's why you look so guilty right now, because you know. 
We only do this every 90 years. I was most excited for you to come. Welcome back. And now I want to move into something a little bit different. So I've been breaking this down geographically, things like that throughout. And now I want to talk about the wider topic of modern folk horror and the modern boom that it's really received. And would a lot of us be into folk horror and get a lot of these movies released if it wasn't for this modern boom that we've seen? So this is going to encompass a lot of territories. I did leave out a lot of the Asian territories because I want to delve more into that specifically in that category because I feel like those are better talked about there. But I'm going to be talking about European films, North American films, African films, South American films. I'm just going to be kind of running the gamut of this modern renaissance that we've seen. So I want to talk to you about, and I think we all can agree on what started this huge folk horror boom in the U.S. And honestly, what started the huge A24 boom as well is pretty much folk horror. I mean, they had a couple of big hits that we're going to talk about that propelled them into the stratosphere, I think. And I think it just fits that A24 thing. Folk horror is usually a slower pace. It's usually more drawn out. It's usually more artistic. Uh, not always, but I want to talk about a movie that released before that one that uh, we'll talk about here in a minute. And I know th I think there are a couple of these out here that probably were already being made by the time The Witch was out. First up, it's The Hollow. And The Hollow is an Irish film. So in The Hollow, if you haven't seen this one, and I highly recommend it if you haven't, you essentially have these uh, this folklore about this ancient evil. And it's been way too long since I've seen this film. I probably need to rewatch it at some point. But there's this ancient evil out in the middle of the woods. Well, the man moves himself, his wife, and his infant child there to survey the land to um, basically see what its prospects are for construction and building. And he kind of awakens that evil. And this is what folk horror is about. You know, you're going back to nature. You're going back to that primitive area. And you're awakening something either within yourself or within the environment. In this case, it's an ancient evil. And I really like that. And I think The Hollow is a great film. And unfortunately, its director would go on to do The Nun after this. And that's really all we've seen from um, Corin Hardy at this point. But The Hollow is so spectacular and so beautiful visually. And I think really it is part of that groundswell that we would see here, just a little bit here and there, because The Hollow was pretty big when it came out. Now, that's not one you're going to hear talked about anymore. And I, you know, there is this dead zone, and there's always this dead zone of films that came out, didn't come out long enough to be considered, you know, classic or older, but they're too far away to be considered modern and recent. And I think right now where we're in that period is 
some of the aughts and the 2010s. And especially the earlier 2010s, because horror was struggling, we were getting, you know, smaller releases and some, of course, theater releases that were very paint by numbers. But horror was really struggling at this point. And then we started all of a sudden in the mid 2010s to just get some of these bangers and films that were rattling the horror community. And it would lead to the explosion that we would see years later. But at this point, we're still getting little films like The Hollow that is really fueling us. And we're not going to talk about this one anymore. People aren't going to talk about this because 2015, you know, that is eight years ago at this point. I think it came in November, so almost eight years. And 2015 certainly isn't old enough to be considered a classic like some of the 90s and earlier aughts films are now. So yeah, we're we're in that dead period. I say all this to say we're in that dead period where people don't talk about The Hollow. If a film in the 2010s wasn't an instant classic like The Witch that we're going to talk about here, uh, like It Follows, people just aren't talking about it. And I think that's a mistake on this one. I think a lot of horror fans remember it. I definitely remember this one being covered on things like Horror Movie Podcast. And I believe I saw Chris Gore cover this as well. Anyway, that's a really good one if you haven't checked it out, but I think that's right there on the fringes where it was being made around the same time as The Witch, and I definitely think it deserves to be in that same conversation. I don't think it's quite as good as The Witch, but it still has that direness and bleakness about it and you know, getting back to the roots and everything like that. So I wanted to mention that one here in the forefront. Then another one that came out, I think a little after The Witch, by the time it finally came out, was Demon from Poland. And I think I think it was a Poland and Israeli co-production. But I'm not sure. But I think that one released in 2016. Now, this isn't one I'm... Uh, it's, it's not my kind of movie. I'm not into this one. But a lot of people love this one. And the synopsis is, a bridegroom is possessed by an unquiet spirit in the midst of his own wedding celebration in this clever take on the Jewish legend of the Dubuque. I'm sorry, I'm butchering that. I do not know the name, but this film is just way too uncomfortable for me, and I think that's the, <laughs> I think that's the problem. But people were singing the praises of this one too, and I still hear it mentioned every once in a while. But I think this fits into that early folk horror um, I think you also have something from the Czech Republic in 2016 called The Noonday Witch. Now, I I haven't seen The Noonday Witch. I'm not sure if I would like it or not, but in this one, it's a story of Eliska and her daughter starting a new life in a remote house with the father away on business, as the mother claims. After the lie is disclosed, their relationship begins to wither. At that time, the mythical Noonday Witch begins to materialize. I mean, it sounds like something I'd be interested to, but knowing what I think I know about it, I don't know if, if it's just too slow of a pace or anything with me. It sounds very um, metaphorical, not having seen the film. But that definitely deserves a mention. Now, there's one called The Unkindness of Ravens, which came out in the UK. Now, I tried to watch this recently, and this is not my type of film. It's... It's one of those very little substance to it and that I felt there was very little substance to it and it's very cheap. And while I, you know, was interested in the idea of it, 
but I don't really want to put myself through, you know, I think the audience knows, or if they haven't known already, how I feel about birds. I'm not going to watch a bunch of ravens on screen if the movie's not good enough for it. Now, I'll watch opera, but uh, that's where I draw the line, I think. That's where I wanted to start with just these other ones that were probably being made and probably don't have any kind of influence of this new boom. And there has to be something in the water because this is all over the world that you're starting to see folk horror kick up. You see it in the Czech Republic, you see it in the UK, you see it in Poland, uh, you see it in Ireland. And of course, you're going to see it in the US with this UK co-production of The Witch from 2015. And or really, it released in February of 2016. The witch is, and I don't need to go into synopsis on the witch, but the witch had incredible staying power, and it really shook things up. When we talk about the witch, I mean that is a movie that took the horror community by storm. I remember when this was coming out, and the groundswell around it was incredible. And this is just a dark bleak, unforgiving film all the way through. There's no, there's very little bright spots. You know, there's no light at the end of the tunnel in The Witch. And really, you know, I watched this at first, and I think my first reaction was, yeah, this is good. Um, It's not as good as everyone makes it out to be. But I liked it. And I think on rewatch, I did come up a decent amount higher on The Witch to the point where I'd probably give The Witch like a 9 or something, and I really do like The Witch. But this really set into motion what we would see, I I think. I mean, at least in the U.S., I think The Witch was huge. And I do think it would set the stage, because just a few years later, we see an influx of folk horror, and we start to see all of these new folk horror stories come out. I don't think you can deny the importance of The Witch on modern folk horror and especially helping with A24 really get launched to new heights. Not necessarily in a box office position, but I think The Witch was the one that really got it. It gave them their notoriety and their clout amongst the horror community. I don't need to spend a lot of time on The Witch because everyone knows about The Witch. Almost everyone's seen The Witch, but its influence shouldn't be downplayed because it was huge. So we've had The Witch. We've had our breakout hit. What comes next? Well, what comes next for me personally are just this slew of English-language films that all embody this going back to nature. They embody this folk spirit. Some of them are period pieces. Some of them are modern day. And it's all over the place. But we just get, I think from really 2018 on, we get a huge rush of English language folk horror films. And really that starts for me with The Ritual. And this is a David Bruckner film. And the synopsis is a group of college friends reunite for a trip to the forest, but encounter a menacing presence in the woods that's stalking them. And I'm not going to ruin the ritual. Um, I am a David Bruckner fan. I think he's done a solid job on all of his films. And I won't say that this one made quite the same waves 
that the witch made, but the ritual was huge in the year it came out. And people were talking about this one for a long time. Now, for the time being, you can still find this one on Netflix if you haven't checked it out. And I highly recommend you doing so um, because it is a I think it's a different type of folk horror film. I mean, it's really cool. I I love where the ritual goes and how it weaves its web into being starting as one film and ending as a very different film. But then we have something like Antrim. And if you haven't checked out Antrim. I don't know if I can recommend you to check out Antrim, honestly. Antrim's a tough sell. But I really like Antrim. And this one came out in 20... I'm trying to remember when it finally was released. 2019, I think it got its release. But with Antrim, the synopsis is, rumored to have been lost, Antrim appears as a cursed film from the 1970s. Viewers are warned to proceed with caution. It's said to be a story about a young boy and girl who enter the forest in an attempt to save the soul of their recently deceased pet. They journey to the Antrim, the very spot the devil landed after being cast out of heaven. There, the children begin to dig a hole to hell. So this is a Canadian joint. It's north of the border. And... Wow, I just remember being so taken with this. It starts off as this kind of documentary almost of, you know, we found this film and this film is cursed and it'll drive you insane or it'll unleash evil or whatever else. And I distinctly remember watching this late at night. You know, it wasn't too long after our first daughter was born and I'm washing her bottles at the sink and I'm watching Antrim at like, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And I, I just really enjoyed this one. It's, you know, I've heard, I've talked several times about nonlinear films and kind of a little bit more confusing or out there films. And I think this is one of those. It's not going to answer all your questions and there's going to be some weird segments, but something about this just entranced me and really brought me in. And I really like Antrim. I don't think it's going to be for everyone. I definitely don't think it's going to be for everyone. But hey, I really enjoyed myself with Antrim and it's definitely a weirder folk horror film if you want to go seek that one out. And then we had another big one, kind of like The Ritual. And this was also a Netflix release, and it was Gareth Evans's Apostle. And Gareth Evans, if you're not familiar, had directed The Raid and The Raid 2, which were Indonesian films, Indonesian action films. Both are excellent if you haven't seen them. And he comes out with this over two-hour folk horror epic. And the synopsis is, in 1905, a man travels to a remote island in search of his missing sister who has been kidnapped by a mysterious religious cult. And I wasn't really prepared for Apostle, and I I really fell in love with Apostle. And again, this one, this is falling into that area where people really aren't talking about Apostle. You'll hear people every once in a while mention the ritual, but I don't hear Apostle mentioned that often. It kind of took the the world by storm in its original year. I remember a lot of people had it on their top 10 horror list. I believe I did too. But Apostle was really good. And I, yeah, these we're just getting the quality of these films that we're getting at this point is just so good. And you know, this one has some familiar faces in it. It has Michael Sheen and uh, Lucy Boynton who would be in, and I'm not I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but she'd be in The Black Coat's Daughter. 
among other things. I can't recommend Apostle enough either. I think for me, really, like the Ritual, Antrim, Apostle, these are ones that really got me into folk horror more, and I wanted to explore more. And I really have to give them all the credit in the world for that. Here's one that I haven't seen, and it's the Field Guide to Evil. And this is an anthology film, and the synopsis is, They are known as myths, lore, and folktales, created to give logic to mankind's darkest fears. These stories lay the foundation for what we now know as the horror genre. So this is one I really want to watch, but I haven't got to it yet. I know Veronica Franz is one of the directors, and uh, Veronica had done The Lodge and Goodnight Mommy previously. Uh, There's a whole list of other directors from around the world, but this is a U.S. film. I know it wasn't received very well, but I'm still very curious to see this one. I haven't. Let me know if you have, though. Up next, we get a U.K. film, and this one was directed by William McGregor, and it's called Gwen. And in Gwen, a mysterious and suspicious run of ill fortune plagues a teenage girl and her mother and sister on their hillside farm in this folk story set in the dark hills of Wales during the Industrial Revolution. Now, I'm not big on Gwen. Gwen was fine for me, but I know a lot of people who, at least a handful of people who did like Gwen more. But again, we're just getting continuous output. All of this is really in the span of 2017, 2018, 2019 films all coming out of the U.S. and U.K. and Canada. And then we get another milestone. And this is one that was huge for people in 2018, and that is Hereditary, directed by Ari Oster. And yeah, this was until everything, everywhere, all at once... This film was the one that held the box office record for A24. And I think Hereditary just had such a profound impact. And I think like The Witch, you can see a lot of similarities here. Very bleak. Not a lot of, uh, even though their subject matter is very different, it's, they're very dark films. They're not very, you're not going to get any, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings out of these ones. Not, Not a lot needs to be said about Hereditary because you can't, I don't think you'll be able to listen to a podcast, a horror podcast. If you listen to five horror movie podcasts, you'll probably hear in a week, you'll probably hear Hereditary mentioned once at least. That one still gets talked about just like The Witch does all the time. So I don't want to go into a ton of it, but that is a very important film and very different folk horror style than The Witch. And I think even then, you know, Antrim or The Ritual or Apostle, I think it's very different from those as well. But Hereditary had such an impact, even though maybe you wouldn't think of it as first glance, it's like this folk horror film, definitely is. Next, I want to talk about one that I feel is extremely underrated and was one of my favorites of 2018, and that is Piwacket. So this was directed by Adam McDonald, and in Piwacket, a frustrated, angry teenage girl awakens something in the woods when she naively performs an occult ritual to invoke a witch to kill her mother. And I really like Piwacket. I think it's I think it's underrated. I don't think it's I don't think people talk about it enough. I don't people think people like it enough. <laughs> That's just my opinion, but I can't change people's opinions. But I think this is a really cool little witch movie. And 
yeah, if you haven't seen Pie Wacket, please go out and see it. At least give it a chance to check it out. If you're into folk horror or witches and that kind of stuff at all, I think you definitely need to see it because that is a it does have that kind of coming of age story in there, but I think it's a very solid film. Next up, we have The Wind, which is not not one I'm a huge fan of. But this one's important, too, because it kind of gets into that Western and frontiersman or frontierswoman approach. And directed by Emma Tammy, the synopsis is Lizzie is a tough, resourceful frontierswoman settling in a remote stretch of land on the 19th century American frontier. Isolated from civilization in a desolate wilderness where the wind never stops howling, she begins to sense a sinister presence that seems to be born of the land itself. And when a newlywed couple arrive at a nearby homestead, their presence amplifies Lizzie's fears, setting into motion a shocking chain of events. Again, I not my favorite, but I know a lot of people like it. And it is that Western horror film, so we don't get a ton of those. Like I said, I think Westerns definitely belong, or Western horror films definitely belong in that folk horror category. Then we move on to 2019 with a trio of pretty high-profile folk horror films, and the least of which is probably The Hole in the Ground by Lee Cronin, who would go on to direct Evil Dead Rise, but I still really like The Hole in the Ground. That definitely ended up being one of my favorites of 2019. I'm not sure, I'm trying to look back now, if it made my list from that year, but I think it was at least an honorable mention, maybe. Maybe not, I don't know. But The Whole Ground is one that I really liked, even though it is maybe the lesser of these ones. And uh, to give you a quick synopsis, if you're not familiar with The Hole in the Ground, trying to escape her broken past, Sarah O'Neill is building a new life on the fringes of a backwood rural town with her young son, Chris. A terrifying encounter with a mysterious neighbor shatters her fragile security, throwing Sarah into a spiraling nightmare of paranoia and mistrust as she tries to uncover if the disturbing changes in her little boy are connected to an ominous sinkhole buried deep in the forest that borders their home. Yeah, I really did enjoy this one, and yeah, it was one of those big three folk horror films of 2019, and another one was The Lighthouse, which I think released in that December. I believe that released in that December. I'm trying to think back to that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was December of 2019, but The Lighthouse, while definitely not one of my favorites, and I think a a huge step down from Egger's other work, not my type of film, but people loved that one and sang its praises throughout the horror community, and, and there are definitely choices here to get into that, you know, it's about two guys at a lighthouse kind of going insane, and... That was huge as well. That one was way bigger than The Hole in the Ground. I think a lot of people just made you know their top horror list. And I could see why definitely it just wasn't uh, wasn't that for me. But the one I did really get into was Midsommar. And that was near the top of my 2019 list. I was blown away by that film when I saw it in theaters. And I wasn't sure how to process it, and I haven't seen it since, but Ari Aster's Midsommar, you know, was one that I really enjoyed, and, you know, this is going back to that almost like a Wicker Man pagan culture, and it's 
it's a pretty brutal one. But uh, Midsommar, I don't think is for everyone for sure. But I think between the lighthouse and that, I mean, folklore was definitely back in 2019. When we move over into the 2020s, we had some smaller profile things. Now, one that I still haven't seen, I need to see is La Llorona. And that is the Guatemalan one from 2020 or 2021. I still need to see that one. I've heard several people talk that one up, but I haven't seen it. This is not the uh, the Conjuring verse one. Then you had Seder, which is this weird little film. If you're not familiar with Seder, let me pull up a synopsis here. Uh, secluded in a desolate forest, a broken family is observed by Seder, a supernatural entity who is attempting to claim them. Now, I think that synopsis is a little more exciting than the actual film, but there's some cool parts in it as well. It's a cool setting and a, a nice setup, but yeah, not necessarily something that's going to wow you, I don't think. Another one from around this time was called Soul or Eight. I'm not sure which one. It was a South African film. And I liked that one quite a lot. The synopsis is, An old man, fated to collect souls for eternity, seeks atonement after trading his daughter's soul. I liked the story of that one. I thought it was pretty cool. If you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth checking out. I think you can still get that one on Tubi or Voodoo for free. So uh, that's a really cool little folk horror film. And then, of course, in 2020, you had my number one film of 2020, which is The Wretched. that deals with witches, and it was a... Well, whether you like it or not, I mean, I know there's mixed opinions on it for sure. You know, there are some others there that carry the torch for this one like I do as well. But The Wretched was a huge success early on in 2020. Uh, I say early on, but probably about midway through the year because it was leading the box office every week with drive-in sales, you know, during COVID and stuff. So I really liked The Wretched. Again, that was one of my absolute favorites of 2020. That one's on Netflix right now, by the way, if you haven't seen it. And yeah, I would highly recommend checking that one out if you haven't as well. Keeping moving here, we have one called Glass House. Now, I haven't seen Glass House. And the synopsis with this one is a mother and her three daughters occupy the titular glass building, which has been completely sealed off to protect its occupants from a dementia-inducing toxin called the Shred that's poisoning the air outside. Fearful of becoming like the lost souls who wander the abyss outside, the family keep a grasp on their past by performing sacred rituals. When B breaks the rules and lets an injured stranger into their midst, the family dynamic is shattered forever as hidden truths upend the illusions the women have worked so hard to protect. That's an interesting one that's definitely not anything new with a stranger being let into a situation that you don't know if you can trust or not. But I am for sure interested in seeing Glass House. It looks like you can rent this one. I don't see it streaming anywhere, but you can rent it. Next up, we have In the Earth, which is a Ben Wheatley joint. And In the Earth was a little too out there for me. You know, I'm not the biggest Ben Wheatley fan. But it definitely was an interesting concept. And maybe it didn't hit as big as Wheatley's other films, but I think it was still an important part of this new wave of folk horror. One that I haven't seen still is called The Old Ways. And I believe that's on Netflix. 
and I didn't get a chance to check that one out for this podcast. But in that one, Christina, a journalist of Mexican origins, travels to her ancestral home in Veracruz to investigate a story of sorcery and healing. There, she is kidnapped by a group of locals who claim she's the devil incarnated. So that's an interesting one. I've wanted to see it, but just haven't got to it yet. You know, it doesn't have the uh, most glowing reviews, but hey, it's on Netflix. Then we have one that I really enjoyed from 2021 called Antlers. And Antlers was a big theater release. That's the thing with uh, things like Midsommar, The Lighthouse, Antlers. They were all in theaters, pulling the ground. A lot of folk were not just coming to streaming, but it's out there in the mainstream. And Antlers, of course, is folk horror in the sense that it deals with the Wendigo legend, which I've mentioned on these set of episodes before, probably the same episode, that I do love the Native American folklore, and especially that of like the Wendigo. I was happy to see it, and while it didn't necessarily live up to my expectations after all the delays, I did still really like Antlers. Then we have another one called Kandisha which was from the directors. This was a French film from, I don't know if it was 2021 or 2022, but this is from the same directors who did Inside, and I like a lot of their work. And Kandisha is a Moroccan legend. So this is set in France, and it was, was this a Shudder? I think it was a Shudder film. But I really liked Kandisha. I think it's a a really cool and creepy movie, and again, getting some bits of folklore from countries we don't usually hear from. Oh boy, then you had the uh, the very interesting The Feast from last year, the Welsh film, and uh, yeah, that was that was a little out there. But if you haven't seen The Feast, it is a wealthy family host a sumptuous dinner, only for a mysterious young server to chillingly unravel their lives with terrifying consequences they could never see coming. So yeah, the uh, said server is very, very interesting character, very weird character. I'm not... Big on the feast, I would highly recommend you check out Candisha before you check out that one, or even this next one. But it's it's certainly an interesting little piece of folk horror. Then you have Hellbender, which of course deals with witches, came out in 2022, put together by the Adams family. And that is just such a cool, it's so low budget, but it's done so well. And I really love Hellbender. Don't need to talk a whole lot about Hellbender. We're getting into films where people should be very familiar with them. But there are a few this same year that maybe people weren't. The last thing Mary saw, I didn't like at all, but that was a Shudder film. I'm not going to go too much into that one. And then we had Men, of course, which everyone pretty much familiar with, which was an Alex Garland film that is pretty much my least favorite Alex Garland film. But there were people that liked that one as well. And then we have Gaia, which is a South, another South African film. And Gaia was pretty interesting. It's similar to In the Earth in ways, and it deals with nature and kind of like, I don't know if you'd say like old gods or anything like that, but Gaia is a very interesting movie. If you haven't checked that one out, let me see if that one is streaming anywhere. Yeah, so Gaia is on Hulu right now, and you can rent it as well. But if you haven't checked out Gaia, that's definitely an interesting one. Let me read you the synopsis. A park ranger takes shelter with two survivalists after an attack by mysterious creatures in a primordial forest. 
Guy's very cool. A lot of stunning visuals in that one. And then one from this year called Ends Men, and that is E-N-Y-S Men. I, I didn't like this one at all. But hey, I think that was at least on Hulu at one point. I don't know if it still is or not. But, I mean, if you're into that kind of thing, maybe you check it out. I don't I don't know. It just wasn't for uh, for me. I think I actually turned that one off. It just wasn't wasn't doing it for me. So leave that to your discretion. I will read you the synopsis, which is a wildlife volunteer on an uninhabited island off the British coast descends into a terrifying madness that challenges her grip on reality and pushes her into a living nightmare. And that synopsis might sound a little cool or it might sound a little uh, overplayed at this point. And I think you're right to think that because honestly, that's very much (laughs) what a lot of these things are. That's could be similarly said about the unkindness of ravens. I mean, it's not that far off of a lot of things we've seen before. And a lot of times when you're diving into a living nightmare or going insane, it there's a very fine line there. And a lot of people can't go on the positive side of that. A lot of people uh, just make this very weird abstract and a lot of times boring film. And I think that was that one for me. But hey, I don't want to bash it too much because I know there's probably people out there who do enjoy that one. It's just not something that I have time to mess around with when there's so many other things that I'm interested in. All right, so that's going to do it for this modern horror section. Um, In closing, I mean, there has just been such a wave of, and most of these were English-speaking languages. I will talk about a lot of the ones from the Asian territories when we get into that. Now, I'm not going to delve deep into like Indonesia or another country that's in North America, Mexico, because as I was doing these episodes, I think I've decided that they each need their own series or set of episodes. I'm going to kind of spin those off and not to say that the other countries don't. I'm just very interested in doing one for those countries. So while I will mention that kind of stuff, don't look for a lot of in-depth coverage like I planned it initially on that but I will be talking some more modern horror and but we have just gotten such an influx of folk horror films and you know especially in the last few years and I think the witch really did open those floodgates and it's really like we've got this new crop of directors who are focusing in on this kind of stuff and I I like that a lot I mean you look at Ben Wheatley who's almost exclusively folk horror except for you know, the Meg 2, whatever that was, but I have a feeling he will be back to the folk horror realm soon. So yeah, I think the future's never looked brighter for folk horror. You know, we had that big boom early on in folk horror, and now we're kind of having it again as horror is having a renaissance overall. What you have to look forward to next time, I'm going to be talking about folk horror, more of its origins when I talk about the UK stuff, And also we'll be talking about other European films. I'm going to be reviewing that box set and kind of giving my top films or top recommendations from it. The All the Haunts BRs from Severin one. And also talking about Asian folk horror. And I'm not sure where to stick Australia. If I stick Australia in the Asian section, if I stick it in with the, the UK stuff, or if I kind of just keep it in yeah i i've got to think about australia but 
either way, that's what you can look forward to next time as I close out this folk horror series. There will also be another bonus episode that should release in between them where I'm talking about retro horror games with Joseph Wilkie. And yeah, with all that being said, you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram at Screaming Ages. You can join the open Facebook group over there, Screaming Through the Ages. Uh, You can find me on Horror Movie Podcast, where hopefully we've got some more episodes out by this point. And, you know, we've got a lot in the back burner just waiting to be released. Uh, You can also go join the Facebook page over there. I'm also on Phantom Galaxy at some times. Hasn't been recently, but hopefully we'll see a resurgence of Phantom Galaxy as well soon. If you want to send an email to the podcast, it is screamingthroughtheages at yahoo.com. And I always appreciate it if you spread the word, tell your friends, leave a review on the podcast service of your choice. And I really just want to thank everyone for listening, especially to these October episodes. I know these usually do a little bit better than my normal episodes. So I'm hoping you guys enjoy these. So until next time, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly dose of Screaming Through the Ages.